In the early 19th century, the cotton industry was divided into two main branches, the spinning of cotton thread and the weaving of the thread into textiles. The large factories that had sprung up in Manchester were mainly spinning mills, while weaving was conducted on a smaller scale, especially in the surrounding towns. The weavers had been the backbone of the Hampden clubs. Samuel Bamford was a weaver, by no means a wealthy man, but seemingly master of his own time. The spinners, on the other hand, worked long hours for low wages, and in the summer of 1818 a bitter strike began. Much dissatisfaction had prevailed for some time among the cotton spinners on the subject of wages, and so early as before the end of June they had struck work to the number of about 15,000. Of course, as days and weeks passed on, and they felt more and more the pressure of diminished resources, while their hopes of attaining their object by peaceable or passive resistance were also dying away, there was the greater danger that they might be tempted to deviate into something illegal. It is probable, also, that from the first, although no satisfactory proofs of combination could be obtained, the usual means of intimidation at least, if not of actual violence, were employed to prevent those who were willing to work from continuing to do so, and to compel them to join the strike. But it appears not to have been till about the beginning of August, that the authorities considered themselves called upon even to make any preparations in contemplation of a possible breach of the peace. By that time, if not before, the spinners had begun to assemble in processions, which were regarded as being intended to make a formidable display of their numerical strength, and, the government having been applied to, some troops were ordered to proceed to the town. The magistrates also, on the first of that month, issued a public notice, in which they described the spinners as being in the habit, not only of assembling in great numbers and parading the streets, but of besetting particular factories, and forcibly preventing the well-disposed from continuing to work, and intimated their determination to use every exertion to bring to punishment the persons concerned in these proceedings. No collision, however, took place till the 2nd of September, on which day the spinners, having been joined by a large body of others from Stockport, after a procession through the streets as usual, repaired to a factory in Ancoats Lane, and, it is said, had actually begun to force their way into the building, when some soldiers and police that were stationed in it fired and wounded three of them, one of whom soon after died. A party of dragoons and infantry then arrived and dispersed the mob, which some calculations made to have amounted to not less than thirty thousand. A coroner's jury that sat upon the body of the man who had been killed brought in a verdict of justifiable homicide. This affair appears to have put an end to the disturbances, and even to have broken up the strike. On the 11th, Lord Sidmouth, who had gone in the beginning of August to spend a few weeks in the west of England, but had been suddenly recalled to town by the alarming reports received at the Home Office, writes as follows to Lord Ellenborough. The combination at Manchester is now nearly dissolved, and tranquillity is completely restored. The verdict of the jury in the case of the person killed in the attack on Gray's Mill, the arrest of Johnson, Bagley and Drummond, who are lodged in Chester Jail, the failure of pecuniary supplies, and the admirable arrangements of Sir John Bing, 
in conjunction with the civil authorities, one of the chief objects of which was to afford protection to all persons disposed to return to their work, have effected this fortunate change. This affair, indeed, in its origin, and so far as it had actually proceeded, was merely a dispute about wages, but, as such, it proved at any rate that all was not gold that glittered in the present show of national prosperity, and that the busy commercial speculation that had sprung up had not prevented the existence of much distress among large classes of the people. Wages, in fact, were not such as to compensate for the high prices of food. Except, however, that meetings for radical reform continued to be held occasionally in London and elsewhere, the tranquillity of the country remained undisturbed for the rest of the year. The economical condition of the country still continued at the close of the year to present much the same superficial appearance which it had done for some time preceding, but the elastic spirit which had existed a twelve-month ago had long been palpably on the decay, and was now quite gone. The harvest had turned out, upon the whole, better than had been expected. Oats, barley, beans, and peas, indeed, proved very unproductive, but the wheat crop was of average quantity. Grass, turnips, and potatoes, which had all been almost given up, made a sudden recovery in the first week of September, when some rain at last fell after the long drought. The consequence was that, although the prices of all other kinds of agricultural produce used as human food rose, and were much higher at the end of this year than they had been at the end of the last, wheat had considerably fallen in price. Oats, for instance, which had been at 45 shillings 11 pence the quarter in December 1817, were now at 63 shillings 6 pence, but wheat, which had been then at 85 shillings 4 pence, had now declined to 78 shillings 10 pence. Still, this might be considered as a scarcity price. Nor had the prices of the other commodities, of which speculation had brought in the largest supplies yet, much given way. It is well known, Mr. Tooke observes, that the resistance to a change, whether from a low to a high or from a high to a low range of prices, is at first very considerable, and that there is generally a pause of greater or less duration before the turn becomes manifest. In the interval, while sales are difficult or impracticable, unless at a difference in price, which the buyer in the one case, and the seller in the other, are not yet prepared to submit to, the quotations are regulated by the last transactions, but are said to be, and are in fact, nominal. A struggle of this kind prevailed more or less, according as the articles were in greater or less abundance, through the autumn, and into the winter of 1818 to 19, when many articles which had become unsaleable from excess were still quoted at nearly as high prices as they had attained at any time in 1818. But the excessive importation, which had not yet much brought down prices, was already bringing down many of the importers and those connected with them, and the year closed in the midst of numerous and extensive bankruptcies. The reform spirit, too, was spreading and rising again among the people, as they began to feel the pressure of the commercial stagnation in diminished employment, and a tendency to decline in wages. But, as has been already stated, 
meetings for reform had continued to be held from the commencement of the year, both in the metropolis and in the manufacturing districts. One which was held, in the latter part of the year, as we gather, at Birch, near Middleton, where he lived, is noted by Bamford for the following incident. It was moved and seconded that petitions to the Lords and Commons should be presented in the usual manner, when William Benbow, who had lately returned from prison, made his way through the crowd and, mounting the wagon, urged the people in a violent and irrational address to march to London and present their petitions at the point of the sword and pike. He was loudly cheered with expressions such as, Aye, that's the way. Go on, Benbow. That's the man for us. At that same time he was pondering on a retreat from the country, that country which he was endeavouring to distract by a course of violence. That very week, or the week following, he sailed from Liverpool to join Cobbett in America. When I afterwards met some of his applauders and asked them what they thought of the man who would urge them to rush on to destruction and then hasten out of the way, they shook with indignation. This may show that all the violent counsels which were addressed to the people did not proceed from the government spies. Some of their leaders were, no doubt, the advisers of as extreme and insane courses as any recommended by Castles or Oliver. Another meeting at Lydgate, in Saddleworth, in the West Riding of Yorkshire, which appears to have taken place earlier in the year, is remarkable for the introduction of an innovation, of which Bamford was himself the originator. In a speech which he made, he proposed that his female auditors should take part with the men in the show of hands when the resolution was put to the vote, vindicating their claim to be allowed to do so, on grounds both of right and expediency. This, says he, was a new idea, and the women, who attended numerously on that bleak ridge, were mightily pleased with it, and the men being nothing dissentient, when the resolution was put, the women held up their hands amid much laughter, and ever from that time females voted with the men at the radical meetings. He adds that the new impulse thus given to the radical movement was not only soon after, copied at meetings for charitable and religious purposes, but was ere long carried much beyond what had been at first contemplated, and brought about the formation of female political unions, with their committee women, chairwomen, and other officials. Bamford, we suppose from all this, would have had the franchise extended to women. The defeat of the spinners' strike convinced many that political reform was the only solution to the woes of the working masses. Bagley, Drummond and Johnston had been arrested and detained once more and would play no further part in the movement. In October 1818, the Reverend Joseph Harrison formed the first union society in Stockport, a town that had played an important role in the political agitation of early 1817 and which would play an equally important role in the lead-up to Peterloo. The Union Society movement spread across the industrial towns of South Lancashire, and public meetings were again frequent. In January 1819, Henry Hunt was invited to Manchester for the first time. It was on the 18th of January that Orator Hunt made his first appearance in a public capacity in Manchester. Application had been made to the borough reeve and constables to summon a meeting 
to petition Parliament for the repeal of the Corn Law. On their refusal, an anonymous advertisement appeared, fixing the meeting for the day we have mentioned. Hunt, who had accepted an invitation to preside, was met by the multitude and conducted into the town in a style which must have been very soothing to his vanity. Flags with the mottoes of No Corn Laws, Universal Suffrage, Rights of Man, Hunt and Liberty being borne before him. The gathering place was that same St. Peter's Field, soon to be made so famous by the events of another day. Hunt in his speech derided the proposal of petitioning Parliament, and the demand of the Assembly was put into the form of a remonstrance to the Prince Regent. Other speeches, of more or less violence, were delivered, and then the people peaceably dispersed. An evening or two after this, Hunt was roughly handled in the theatre at Manchester by some officers of the Seventh Hussars, who alleged that he had hissed when God Save the King was called for, an incident which, of course, he did not fail to turn to account. He immediately wrote to the Duke of York, the Commander-in-Chief, and published his letter. At the same time he wrote to Samuel Bamford at Middleton, requesting that zealous follower, as he then was, to come to him. When they met the next day, he directed Bamford to procure some ten or a dozen stout fellows to take their places in the pit on the evening of the following Monday, when he would again present himself in the theatre. On the appointed night, Bamford was at the pit door by six o'clock, accompanied by nine other Middleton cotton or silk weavers, picked men, each armed with a stout cudgel. The ten rough-looking country fellows had attracted some notice as they passed through the streets. Bamford gives a graphic description of them, which we quote the rather, as it must be understood to set before us the writer's own personal appearance, at least in general outline. They were all young men, tall, gaunt, and square-built, long-legged, free-limbed, and lithe as staghounds, and as they went tramp, tramp along the flags, people looked, startled, and looked again, while the observed ones, nothing noticing, went onwards like men who knew their work, and were both able and willing to perform it. A crowd soon collected and filled the street in which the theatre stood, but any serious mischief was prevented by the prudent determination of the manager to have no performance that evening. Hunt, however, had his triumph, and one which suited his purpose as well, and was probably quite as much to his taste, as would have been any he could have had in a melee within the walls of the theatre. After some time a coach drove into the street, and on its being ascertained, to contain the great popular champion, and some of his friends, a loud huzzah burst from the dense multitude. A few hisses were soon silenced. "'Hunt,' continues Bamford, then mounted the box, and, addressing the people, stated that the manager had written to him, saying there would not be any performance that night, and requesting, I think, that he would come up and try to get the people to disperse and go home. He next entered on some general topics, and, with singular bad taste, to say the least of it, for his impetuosity overran his judgment, he said the authorities only wanted a pretext to let the bloody butchers of Waterloo loose upon the people, and concluded by advising them to retire to their homes peaceably. We then gave three cheers, the carriage disappeared, 
and the street was soon deserted. Our party went to the Robin Hood, where we were joined by a score or two of others, and we set to and caroused until midnight, and then returned home. Women played an important role in the movement for reform. The meeting at Saddleworth, at which Samuel Bamford proposed that women should vote, took place in the summer of 1818. Alice Kitchen established the first female union in Blackburn in June 1819. Others followed in Royton, Oldham and Manchester. Mary Files, who would sit alongside Henry Hunt as his barouche made its entrance to the Peterloo meeting, was the leader of the Manchester female reformers. Susanna Saxton was secretary and author of a popular pamphlet. The Manchester Female Reformers Address to the Wives, Mothers, Sisters and Daughters of the Higher and Middling Classes of Society. Dear Sisters of the Earth, it is with a spirit of peaceful consideration and due respect that we are induced to address you upon the causes that have compelled us to associate together in aid of our suffering children, our dying parents, and the miserable partners of our woes. Bereft not only of that support the calls of nature require for existence, but the balm of sweet repose hath long been a stranger to us. Our minds are filled with horror and despair, fearful, on each returning morn, the light of heaven should present to us the corpse of some of our famished offspring, or nearest kindred, which the more kind hand of death had released from the grasp of the oppressor. The Sabbath, which is set apart by the all-wise Creator for a day of rest, we are compelled to employ in repairing the tattered garments to cover the nakedness of our forlorn and destitute families. Every succeeding night brings with it new terrors so that we are sick of life and weary of a world where poverty, wretchedness, tyranny and injustice have so long been permitted to reign amongst men. Dear sisters, we feel justified in stating that under the oppressive system of government that we now live, the same fate that hath overtaken us must speedily be the lot of many of you. For it is said in the word of God, where the carcass is, there will the eagles be also. And this we have proved to demonstration, that the lazy, burramongering eagles of destruction have nearly picked bare the bones of those who labour. You may then fairly anticipate that when we are mixed with the silent dust, you will become the next victims of the voracious burra tyrants, who will chase you, in your turn, to misery and death, till at length the middle and useful class of society is swept by their relentless hands from the face of the creation. From very mature and deliberate consideration, we are thoroughly convinced that under the present system, the day is near at hand, when nothing will be found in our unhappy country but luxury, idleness, dissipation and tyranny on the one hand, and abject poverty, slavery, wretchedness, misery and death on the other. To avert these dreaded evils, it is your duty, therefore, to unite with us as speedily as possible and to exert your influence with your fathers, your husbands, your sons, your relatives, and your friends, to join the male union for constitutionally demanding a reform in their own house, namely, the Commons House of Parliament, 
for we are now thoroughly convinced that for want of such timely reform the useful class of society has been reduced to its present degraded state and that with such a reform the english nation would not have been stamped with the indelible disgrace of having been engaged in the late unjust unnecessary and destructive war against the liberties of france that closed its dreadful career on the crimson plains of waterloo where the blood of our fellow-creatures flowed in such mighty profusion that the fertile earth seemed to blush at the outrage offered to the choicest works of heaven and for a space of time was glutted with the polluted draught till the almighty with a frown upon the aggressors drew a veil over the dismal scene let us now ask the cause of this dreadful carnage was it to gain immortal happiness for all mankind or if possible was it for a nobler purpose alas no the simple story is this that all this dreadful slaughter was in cool blood committed for the purpose of placing upon the throne of france contrary to the people's interest and inclination the present contemptible louis a man who had been living for years in this country in idleness and wandering from one corner of the island to the other in cowardly and vagabond slothfulness and contempt let it be remembered at the same time that this war to reinstate this man has tended to raise landed property threefold above its value and to load our beloved country with such an insurmountable burden of taxation that it is too intolerable to endure longer it has nearly annihilated our once flourishing trade and commerce and is now driving our merchants and manufacturers to poverty and degradation we call upon you therefore to join us with heart and hand to exterminate tyranny and foul oppression from the face of our native country it affords us pleasure to inform you that numbers of your ranks have voluntarily mixed with us who are fully determined in defiance of the threats of the Burramongers, to aid us in our just and constitutional career our enemies are resolved upon destroying the last vestige of the natural rights of man and we are determined to establish it for as well might they attempt to arrest the sun in the region of space or stop the diurnal motion of the earth as to impede the rapid progress of the enlightened friends to liberty and truth the beam of angelic light that hath gone forth through the globe hath at length reached unto man and we are proud to say that the female reformers of manchester have also caught its benign and heavenly influence it is not possible therefore for us to submit to bear the ponderous weight of our chains any longer but to use our endeavour to tear them asunder and dash them in the face of our remorseless oppressors we can no longer bear to see numbers of our parents immured in workhouses our fathers separated from our mothers in direct contradiction to the laws of god and the laws of man our sons degraded below human nature our husbands and little ones clothed in rags and pining on the face of the earth dear sisters how could you bear to see the infant at the breast drawing from you the remnant of your last blood instead of the nourishment which nature requires the only subsistence for yourselves being a draught of cold water it would be criminal in us to disguise any longer the dreadful truth 
for in the midst of all these privations if we were to hold our peace the very trees of the forest and the stones of the valley would justly cry out these are a few of the consequences resulting from the mad career of the Burramongers' war to say nothing of the thousands and tens of thousands that have been slain the widows and orphans that have been left destitute and unprotected the hypocritical hireling will blasphemously tell you that these things are of divine ordinance but in vain does he publish this to reason and common sense the great author of nature makes no distinction of persons the rich and the poor are all alike to him and surely the forked lightning the awful thunder the terrible earthquakes and the howling and flaming volcanoes are sufficient to chastise the most obdurate without man becoming the oppressor of man we close the disgusting scene for language would infinitely fall short in painting the portrait of our woes in all their horrible deformities in conclusion we earnestly entreat you to come forward posterity will bless the names they see enrolled under the banners of reform remember that all good men were reformers in every age of the world noah was a reformer he warned the people of their danger but they paid no attention to him lot did in like manner but the deluded people laughed him to scorn the consequence was they were destroyed all the prophets were reformers and also the apostles so was the great founder of christianity he was the greatest reformer of all and if jesus christ himself were to come upon the earth again and to preach against the church and the state in the same manner he did against the jewish and heathen nations his life would assuredly be sacrificed by the relentless hand of the borough judases for corruption tyranny and injustice have reached their summit and the bitter cup of oppression is now full to the brim in addition to their work for political reform women played a crucial part on the day of peterloo without their participation the meeting at st peter's field on august the sixteenth would have been a very different affair yet at no time did the programme of the reformers and radicals extend beyond universal male suffrage it would be many years before female suffrage would be placed on the agenda for political reform so god bless henry hunt me boys with henry hunt we'll go we'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of nady joe <laughs>